we the temple. During the closing few months, leading up to the final week of the life and ministry of Jesus, the momentum of his public appearances began to build up. And supernatural works of miracles and healing amongst the blind and the lame and the infirm are taking place everywhere. But these sensational public appearances of Jesus and his engagement in open conflict and debate with the scribes and the Pharisees created a fame and a notoriety that Jesus did not deliberately set out to achieve. He saw his father's power and love being glorified in himself. All of these things were revealing who the father was in his love for us. And especially in the final, most astonishing miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And it was during that time, that over those past weeks and months, there's been this build-up of momentum. And many people were questioning him, saying, are you indeed the Christ? Now, all this uninvited fame and notoriety posed an enormous threat to Herod, who was the legal king over the Jews, but it also signalled a threat to the Roman Empire as the people were urging Jesus to establish his own kingdom. And when he did finally ride in to Jerusalem on a donkey at the beginning of the week of Passover, the Bible says, the Pharisees spoke to one another saying, you see, we can do nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. That's in John 12. They feared that Jesus would decide to rule over the Jewish religion and keep on working miracles, feeding the poor, raising people from the dead. And they were anxious about the fervour of the hero worship that Jesus was getting and the anticipation of his rise to spiritual power. They feared that he'd be invincible. He would topple their religious power base. They had feverishly been trying to discredit the resurrection of Lazarus to the point that the chief priests plotted to have Lazarus put to death again and for him to stay dead this time. That's in John chapter 12, verse 10. It's quite extraordinary. But the passionate dedication of Jesus for the temple, his father's house, had been there. It was evident in the last few months of his ministry. And he placed intense focus on the final three temple visits. For Jesus, each temple visit was not just like a visit to church as a good religious Jew. There was a distinct purpose for each visit because each feast had a message. At each feast, he made statements that declared that he was the spiritual fulfilment of what each feast was all about. At each feast, he declared what was happening in the here and now for Israel at that present moment. And for each feast, he declared our future participation with him as the new temple to be in the prophetic fulfilment of our lives as history would move forward in the plan of God 
for this age that he was bringing in, a kingdom. So we were in his thoughts. Now the first of the final three temple visits, going back to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was about five months prior to the Feast of Passover, that feast was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, where they all gathered together in a great show of unity and, and uh, celebrated the harvest and God's provision. And the key event was the celebration of the living water that flowed out from the rock that Moses struck with his rod in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17. So when Jesus came to this feast, he came round the back roads to avoid the now very common commotion that would get caused with the interaction with all the people. He wanted to be there at this feast for a special reason. He came about midway into the feast and he wanted to be ready for the moment that he was going to speak the words that would be immortalised for us throughout time. And on the meandering way to the temple, as he came around the back way, he would have passed many hundreds and hundreds of tents on the hillsides because thousands of people gathered on these hills for the week of the Feast of Booths in their tents. And during that feast, people had been dancing and singing and they'd been doing the water-drawing ceremonies and rituals they were acted out each morning. The women would get water from the surrounding springs and the wells in their water pitchers and they'd take them up to the temple and they'd be singing with the men and the children and they were singing from Isaiah 12, 13. Therefore with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. That was the... That was the statement of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the feast had a closing ceremony on the seventh day. And that's what Jesus wanted to be there for and to say what he wanted to say for us and for all of history. And that ceremony was the drawing of the living water commemorating the living water that God had provided for them at the rock in the wilderness. And Jesus had arrived for that part especially. And on that day, as the large golden water bowl was carried by the people up the temple steps, a huge crowd stood around watching and cheering amidst all the sounding trumpet blasts, the high point of the feast, and at the top of the temple steps was a special altar with a, a selected priest, the Sadducees selected a certain priest, waiting for the big moment to arrive. When the bowl was presented to him, he would raise his hands to indicate that the call was about to be made for people to come, you who thirst, drink of the water. And it would have been right at that moment when the priest raised his hand that Jesus would come and stand in front of the crowd and call out in a strong, loud voice, as we see in the scripture, on that, this is in John 7, 37, on that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The scripture goes on to say, He was speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. That was the statement. And the scriptures tell us 
In the next few verses, from verse 40 on, in John chapter 7, the division and argument broke out amongst the crowd. Many in the crowd said, this is the prophet, while others said, this is the Christ. And while the temple police officers said, no one has ever spoken like this man, they realised that Jesus had turned their historic feast into a proclamation of who he was. And what we realise is that this was a proclamation of their salvation and our salvation and our present faith and our future hope an astounding fulfilment of prophecy. But this audacious performance of Jesus further provoked the priests and the teachers of the law. Jesus was in trouble. Now the second temple visit was when he attended the Feast of Hanukkah. And the Feast of Hanukkah is the feast of the rededication of the temple at Jerusalem. This feast is not mentioned in the Old Testament because it occurred between the time of the last book of Malachi being written and before the time of Jesus in those 400 silent years. However, it's mentioned in the New Testament. It came during December, a little while after the Feast of Tabernacles and before the Feast of Passover, which was in March and April of the next year. And in John chapter 10, verse 22, it speaks of this feast. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, say it plainly. They wanted to hear him say it. Well, some did and some didn't. And then Jesus declared, I and the Father are one. And the Bible tells us that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you now going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And what they should have said is, please explain to us how you, as God, have come to us as a man. <laughs> that would have been the right thing to, to ask or to say. But that revelation was to come. Then in the last week of Jesus' life and ministry, which we call Holy Week, Jesus rode down from the Mount of Olives near Bethany. That was up where Lazarus lived. And he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that the disciples had prepared for him. And the crowds laid palm leaves on the road in front of him, calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's in John 12. And that last week, which was to culminate in the Feast of Passover, was also the week of the Last Supper, the week where he was betrayed by Judas, where he agonised in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was denied by Peter, put on trial and crucified. That was the big week. But he had a mission in coming to that temple. That spectacular feast and that spectacular visit to the feast of Passover was the third significant visit to attend special feasts at the temple that he'd been making for five months. And this time he came to cleanse the temple from the corruption of the money changes that were there and he came to heal many of the blind and the infirm 
who are only allowed to enter the outer temple area. Now many of these people have been following him. Many had been healed and blessed and set free. But he was going to where the greatest crowds in the Middle East were gathering at this time of the year, the Feast of Passover, the temple. And there would have been many there that he wanted to touch. He made it clear to his disciples, actually made it clear that the procession was to be the fulfilment of a prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 9. Cry aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and able to deliver. He's humble and riding on a donkey in a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus had also told people that he was not interested in an earthly kingdom. He said, my kingdom's not of this world. But they did not want to believe him. They wanted the king. They wanted their hero. But after Jesus had entered Jerusalem and that boisterous procession was over and the palm leaves had been strewn everywhere, Jesus headed straight for the temple to his father's house to which he was dedicated with a passion. And he entered this vast outer court of the Gentiles and he went to where the money changers were. They were selling animals and birds for sacrifice because this is the area into which all of the Jews from, from beyond, from Syria and Chaldea and uh, Persia and Asia Minor, they would come during this special week for the Feast of Passover. And the grandeur and vastness of this temple complex that Herod had built covered an astounding area, as it is recorded, of about 35 acres. And the outer court would accommodate the space of many, many football stadiums. It was a massive wonder, and it was described by Josephus, the historian, as the greatest ever heard of. Absolutely massive. But because these foreigners who'd come into this vast crowd didn't have the silver shekel, which was the temple shekel currency, they had to exchange foreign money. They had to get the shekel instead of their Persian currency or whatever they had. And so the money changing tables were not the, pro the problem for Jesus because these people needed to buy turtle doves and lambs and such things to offer the sacrifice. That part was okay. But his heart did burst with indignation at the corruption because the money changes would charge from 20 to 300% interest on the exchange of money. And this was not only criminal, but it was an abomination for Jesus in his father's house, which was supposed to be there for the people to use for prayer and worship and sacrifice. And it had been turned into a den of thieves. So he threw over their tables and he chased them out of the temple. His actions were hard-hitting and forceful, but they were driven by this passion of protective love that Jesus had for his father's house, his father's house of prayer in the presence of God. And there were many others in that vast crowd quietly mingling among the crowd in the outer court. And they were the silent ones. They'd learned to accept their lot they didn't lift their voice above the crowd. They were the blind and the lame and the infirm who were forbidden by the decrees in Leviticus 21 to enter into the temple proper to appear before the Lord and worship 
in his presence. So they were separated and cut off and mostly despised by the Pharisees and Jesus had great compassion for them. They would have heard his life-giving words. Some of them would have been around when he was doing healing. They would have heard him say, be healed. They would have heard him and watched him forgiving sins. And they could have had this humble hope in their heart that this man was the Messiah. It was a tremendously emotional time. But they held back in all that commotion. You know, when the money tables were being tossed over, they probably just stood around not wanting to say too much. And when the crowd would have seen what Jesus had done, he was probably standing alone, thinking, what next? The Bible says that they rushed towards Jesus as he stood in their midst and he healed every one of them from their diseases. Jesus had come to change their pitiful, lowly state to turn the outsiders into insiders. That was his mission. In Matthew 21, it says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. The temple was the one of the Old Testament fixtures. There were lots of things in the Old Testament that were set as reminders of the presence of God. They would set up stones and where they'd gone and so on. But this fixture, the temple, was emblematic of everything holy for Jesus throughout his entire life. He was dedicated there. And 12 years later, when he came to the temple with his parents for the Feast of Passover, he sat there with the teachers of the law for three days, speaking words of wisdom and astonishing them. I said, how can this boy know this much about God? And then when his distraught parents came to find him, thinking that he'd been lost because they were on their way home and he wasn't there with them, they discovered... He simply said to them, and this is in Luke 2, don't you know, I must be about my father's work. See, his life was the temple in the sense that he was the temple. And he said things in the temple that became eternal and are for us now. That was the place ordained in the Old Testament that God would meet with his people. It was his habitation. But it was about to change its nature from man-made to heaven-sent. The temple had arrived in the earth. That's why it was so important to Jesus. He was a living, walking temple. And he knew that his death and resurrection would mean that that temple, called the temple made with hands, would be replaced. It would no longer be the place where God met with his people. It was about to end. And in fact, a short time after his death and resurrection, the temple would be destroyed and cease to exist. So it was no more after some time. And his prophecy concerning that fact, that the temple would cease to exist, became the charge of blasphemy that was made against him at his trial. In John chapter 2, verse 9, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Because he'd been doing all of those works and they had him there on trial. And he answered them and he, and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple 
And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now the final dramatic transfiguration of the Jewish temple at Jerusalem from the place of worship and God's presence into a spiritual reality of God with us through Christ was marked by a supernatural sign at his crucifixion. When Jesus died on the cross at Golgotha, the scripture says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. And Jesus had said, it is finished. The curtain was torn. And when that was torn, it was the last barrier to come down between God and mankind in the earth. In a few weeks, the Holy Spirit would be sent. Heaven would bring God to us. It says through the, the Father and the Son, they sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and then access into the holy place of God's presence, that is through the curtain, would become a reality as an act of faith by us and love as people received that life, the life of Jesus. That would dwell within their hearts and they would become the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he wanted to achieve. Well, that was, that was one big thing that he wanted to achieve. But in doing that, you can see how the story of salvation is being proclaimed throughout his temple presence wherever he went. Because he wanted to see the meeting place become us and the presence of the Lord be there in us and for us, for us to carry. So just as Jesus was able to say, I am the temple, he said that so that we can now say we are the temple. And just as Jesus declared he was the living water at the Feast of Tabernacles, so now we have the river of the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. He said that for us, not just for Israel. And just as Jesus at the Feast of Dedication said, I and the Father are one and got into big trouble for that, we can say we are now one with Jesus and the Father. That's in John 14. And just as he spoke the words, it is finished on the cross. So for us, there's nothing we can do by our own works to add to his perfect work of salvation other than to believe and then say thank you to him for what he does for us and also what he can do through us because he wants to live through us. And we can know, we can realise, have made real the purpose and the will of God in our lives. To know at any moment we can say, I am the temple and the presence of God here can flow out and touch others' lives the way you direct, Lord. No matter how many cathedrals and churches we build, there's no longer any man-made sanctuary in this earth. There is no longer any altar. The altar is now in our heart of love and surrendered faith in Jesus. And wherever we meet, 
and however we meet in his name. We are his temple and he joins with us there in worship to his Father. So we just give thanks to you, Lord, now for speaking to us in what you did through your life and in the words that you said from the times that you made declarations that changed history and immortalised living words for us to live now. We say thank you because that is your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.